Good morning, everybody. Uh, me and my cold are here. So I got all my junk just in case I need something else. Uh, we will get loaded up here. So I got a question for you this morning. How many of you went to church and went to Sunday school as a children? Can I see a show of hands? You're going to have to raise them high because I'm like blinded by the light here. Oh, wow, that's a like really good percentage of y'all. So how many, when you think about uh, going to church uh, as a little kid, and particularly your Sunday school class, what are some of the stories that you remember learning about, the Bible stories that you learned as a kid? David and Goliath. What else? Noah's Ark. Jonah and the whale. Zacchaeus. Jericho. Okay. Those are all good stories, power stories. Well, when I asked myself this question, I got thinking about the, the stories I remembered from my childhood and being in Sunday school. And I found that there was a theme, at least for me. I tended to like the stories as a kid that were about other kids. Because you know, before Moses was big and bad and throwing around Ten Commandments, he was baby Moses in the bulrushes, right? With big sister Miriam. And then there was uh, um, Samuel before he was the kingmaker. He was little boy Samuel in the temple whose mom kept bringing him a new change of clothes every year. Didn't you get to the flannel graph, you know, where you got to? Y'all aren't old enough for flannel graph. Okay, so uh, David, in the story and the Sunday school I went to, we had a song. We'll spare you the song. But the little boy David, down by the babbling brook, five little stones he took. I liked the stories about kids. And Sunday school curriculum writers, they knew what they were doing. They knew their audience. They targeted the lessons to children about children. And we got this sense that even little people could be a part of God's story, right? That's a good lesson to learn. One of the most famous children in the Bible is a kid whose name we don't know. He's famous because he shared his lunch with Jesus. Do you remember this kid? How much lunch did he have? Five loaves, two fish. And as I recall, the moral of the story was you may be a little person, and you may just have a little bit to give, but you give it to Jesus, and he can do amazing things with it. And that was a great story to learn, a great lesson to learn. And as I was thinking about um, which sign or wonder that I wanted to talk about this morning, uh, when Nick asked me to do this, and I didn't have a cold, um, <coughs> I thought about the feeding of the 5,000. And as I began studying it, and unpacking it, I was like, oh my goodness, there is so much here. As we've mentioned before, the Bible has many, many layers of truth and application that we can take out of any one story. And I seriously made a list of about six different messages that I could have preached out of the feeding of the 5,000. Lucky for you, I'm only doing one. All right, maybe I'll squeeze a little bit of a second one in there as well. But today I want us to dig deeper uh, at the story of the feeding of the 5,000, and I want to look at it in its larger context, not just the feeding of the 5,000, but what kind of led up to it and the stuff that happened after it. Because I think there is something really important that Jesus wants us to get out of the feeding of the 5,000. <clears> uh, it gets to the core of 
his purpose and his ministry and by trickle down our uh, purpose and ministry as a church as well as sort of our own personal response to Jesus. All that to say, there's a lot to cover. All right, so hang on. So the feeding of the 5,000, massive, huge public spectacle of a, of a miracle. And it's also a, a particularly significant miracle we know because of this. Other than the resurrection, it's the only miracle that is repeated in all four Gospels. It's the only one. The Gospel writers, they had thousands of Jesus' miracles to pick from as they included it in their particular version of the story that they were telling and what they wanted to emphasize. But all four of them chose to include the feeding of the 5,000 because it was that significant. And as you, um, each one of them is going to present it slightly differently. Each one of them put it in a little bit different context. And so as I was looking through the four Gospels and trying to weave together um, a storyline from them, particularly the events leading up to the feeding of the 5,000, this is the picture I get. And I'm going to take a little drink. So this is the picture I get. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He can't go anywhere at this point without being mobbed by people. And so he tends to stay out in kind of isolated places where he's got some breathing room. And uh, he is on everybody's mind. Everybody is talking about Jesus, who he is and what he's doing. John the Baptist, at the same time, he figures into this story a little bit. He uh, had given Jesus the thumbs up, his endorsement. He had told everybody, look, there's a Lamb of God. He had get, he'd said, this is the one we've been waiting for. My ministry is about to decrease. His is going to take off. And in fact, that's what happened. John was actually in prison. His ministry was definitely decreasing. And he was, in min uh, he was in prison long enough that he began to have the same question everybody else did, was like, who is this guy? He was starting to have his own doubts. Reading between the lines, is it possible that he's thinking, you know what? I'm the cousin of the Messiah. I'm like the servant of God. What am I still doing in prison? And he sends people to John, and, and uh, rather to Jesus, and he says, are you really the one we've been looking for? Because I'm not, I'm waffling a little bit on that right now. Jesus sends back this message. You go tell John, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. Keep the faith, John. Keep the faith. Well, John not only sits in prison long enough that uh, Herod gets tricked into having John executed. He has him beheaded. And his disciples go, John's disciples, go get his body, and they bury him. And then the scripture says they go and they find Jesus. Now, finding Jesus may not have been that easy because Jesus is out wandering the countryside, and he has also, at this point, started sending his disciples out to teach in the countryside. They're going out and they're teaching the good news of the kingdom. He's given them power and authority to do miracles, to heal people. 
And so the whole countryside is like exploding with the teaching and the impact of Jesus. And at the time that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place, you've got this sense that here's John's people coming with you know, their sad news. They've got the disciples coming back, and they're like, can you, imagine, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been one of those disciples and coming back to Jesus and going, you will not believe what we got to do. You won't. There was this guy, and his face was like melting off with leprosy, and I healed him in your name, and his face is all, you know, them talking over each other, trying to, you know, say, well, my story's even cooler than that. I'm a paramedic. I get to hear these stories all the time. <clears throat> Everybody wants to tell their, like, biggest and greatest and grossest story, right? <laughs> well, they are all come back, and the, the feeling that you get, for especially the Gospel of uh, Mark, is that there are so many, he literally says this, there were so many people coming and going. It's like, you know, it was claustrophobic. There wasn't enough room to move. They didn't, he said, even have time to eat. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, come on, let's get away. I want to go someplace where you can get some rest. So he puts them in a boat, and they go across the Sea of Galilee, which is, you know, just a really big lake, and they get to the other side. But any hope Jesus had of some quiet time, maybe a minute to grieve, maybe a minute to just like be alone with God, a minute just to relate to his uh, disciples, they're thwarted. The people knew where he was headed. Somehow they followed him. The Bible says they ran around the lake. You know, it's like, hey, he's going that way. People are like hop, skipping, and jumping, and they meet him over there so that when Jesus gets to the other side of the lake, there is already a crowd forming. And I love how the Gospels uh, talk about his reaction. He says in the Gospel of uh, Matthew, he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed them. Mark says, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he taught them. And then Luke says, he welcomed them. No sagging shoulders for Jesus, no eye roll. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he cured those who needed it. John, John always comes from a different direction. John tells when Jesus saw the crowd coming to him, he turns to Philip and he poses a question. He says, where will we buy enough so that they can eat? Where will we buy enough bread so that they can eat? So he poses the question, this is the problem. And it looks like maybe the disciples stew on it all day. And at the end of the day, you know what they come back with? You got to send them away. <laughs> That's their solution. Jesus, you got to send them away. There's no place in this remote area to buy enough bread. And even if there was, I mean, it would take a year's wage for everybody to have one bite. You just got to send them away to the villages so that they can take care of themselves. Jesus' reaction no, they do not need to go away. You. Give them something to eat.
one of them comes and says, well, we got this kid and his five loaves and his two fish. But what's that going to do? Jesus says, give them to me. He prays. He breaks the bread. He starts handing out the bread and the fish and the bread and the fish. And he's told them to sit in groups of 50, uh, the men to sit in groups of 50. So presuming that's how they actually counted that there were 5,000 men, plus the children and the women. And it says that they kept eating until they were full, until they were satisfied. And then they picked up the leftovers and there were 12 baskets left over. This is a time of immense food insecurity. People were used to being more hungry than full. This was huge. They ate till they were satisfied. Well, that's the end of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But it's not the end of the impact. It's not the end of the meaning of it. Jesus is going to continue to refer to this, uh, this event. And that's what I want us to look at today. So Jesus puts them the, at the end of the day. Now these people are fed. He says, okay, now they can go. And he dismisses the crowd. And he puts the disciples on a boat, sends them back across the sea, and he finally gets to go up on the mountain and have some quiet time, some alone time. But in the middle of the night, when it's dark and they're rowing across the lake, a storm comes up. The winds and the waves are fierce. And the Bible says they were straining against the oars. And these experienced fishermen were terrified. But not as terrified as when they looked over the lake and they saw a ghost. Because Jesus had for some reason decided he was going to just take a midnight stroll across the lake. That's how he was getting back across. And so he apparently is not worried in the least about them and the fact that they're straining against the oars. He was about to pass them by, according to one of the stories. And so when they scream out in terror, he's like, okay, great, I guess I got to ride with these guys. And so he hops in the boat with them. Now, this is also the place where, you know, Peter walks on the water in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, but we're not stopping for that today. So he's in the boat with them. And this is a scripture I want to point you to. He says, it says, they were amazed. Jesus has calmed the storm. Like, okay, let's think about this. One, he was walking on the water. Peter made an attempt to walk on the water. Now he's in the boat with them, and the storm has calmed down. And they are amazed. That seems like a reasonable reaction to me. But the next part of the verse says, they were amazed for... They hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hard. I can tell you, when I read this, I was like, yeah, I guess the 13th person in the boat is also not getting it. What does that feeding of the 5,000, the loaves, have to do with what they're experiencing right here, right now? It begs the question, what were they supposed to get out of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? Something. Nick's been telling us, you know, the miracles are told, they're included, not just for the sake of the miracle themselves, but they mean something. And there's a meaning here that currently is hidden from the disciples' eyes. 
So keep that thought in mind. What were they supposed to get out of this? When they get to the other side, the crowd, again, is following them. And some of the Gospels are coming for healing. But there's a group of them that had been on the other side. And they show up and they go, hey, Rabbi, you didn't get in the boat with your disciples. When did you get here? They call him Rabbi, right? Teacher. But Jesus cuts through. He sees what their real motivation is. And he says, look, you are not here because of the signs I did or because of my teaching. You're here because you want more food, right? That's really why you're here. And it launches them into a discussion with Jesus that centers around the fact, and from their perspective, who does this guy think he is? And it also is Jesus trying to challenge them to answer the question for themselves, who do you think that I am? It's found in the Gospel of John, and it goes like this. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they ask him, what do we have to do the works God requires? Now, this is the kind of question that comes from Pharisees, not from, like, everyday man. And uh, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And then they said, what sign will you give us that we can see it and believe in you? Like, what just happened over there? Was that not enough of a sign? And they're like, hmm, you see, Moses did stuff like that. If you're claiming that you're from heaven, you got to be better than Moses. Give us another sign. And so he says, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Like, that sounds good. Give us some of that bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still you do not believe. The people are entirely uh, confused and even outraged at Jesus' statement that he came from heaven. So they ask for another sign if he's going to beat out Moses. And then he goes on. He doesn't back down. He then ramps it up and he says, I'm the bread of life. He said, your ancestors, they ate that manna. But it wasn't real life-giving bread. It was daily bread. It kept their bodies alive. But guess what? For a while, they eventually died after they ate that. I'm talking about a different kind of bread. I'm talking about something that gives you a whole different quality of life. And I am that. And then he ramps it up even further. And he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, what? What in the world? They start arguing with themselves. What can he possibly mean by this? And Jesus doesn't back down. He says, in fact, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is too much. At this point, even some of his close followers, the people who aren't the 12, but they, you know, they're pretty tight, they're like, this, frankly, this is embarrassing. We're out of here. And the Gospel of John says that many of his disciples turned back at this point and followed him no longer. 
The reason I take much time on this particular teaching out of John is that John does better than anybody else pointing out that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is a watershed moment in Jesus' ministry. He reveals who he is to the people. I'm the bread of life. I'm claiming to be the source, the actual source of life. But many of them were not willing to receive it. And as we saw from the reaction of the disciples in the boat, they still didn't understand that either. Which is why perhaps Jesus does a repeat performance. Both Matthew and Mark record that after Jesus fed the 5,000, he went around doing the healing thing again, and people are blind or seeing, lame or walking, deaf or hearing, and they're praising God, and everything is going great, and they love hanging out with Jesus. And once again, because he does this in remote places, because he can't get, like, elbow room anywhere else, he turns to his disciples and he says, I have compassion on these people. Sound familiar? I have compassion on these people. They've been with me for three days and haven't had anything to eat. If I send them away now hungry, they're going to collapse on the way. And the disciples say, oh, well, no problem. You're Jesus. You know how to turn, like, take five and turn it into enough to feed five. No. They say, where in this remote place exactly do you think we're going to find food to feed all these people? Have you ever tried to train somebody, maybe an employee, a child, you know, somebody, a student, and you get your lesson, you, you, you lay out the, the, the task, and, and you've done your best job to explain it to them, and then you get to the end of it, and you're like, okay, now it's your turn, and they ask you a question that makes you realize you have just wasted the last 30 minutes of your life. I feel like this is Jesus. I can just kind of see him taking a deep breath. Let's start from the top. How many loaves do you have? Seven and some fish. He prays. He breaks the bread. He starts handing it out. People are sitting down. He starts handing out to the disciples. The disciples hand it to the people. And the people eat until they are full and satisfied. Same language as before. This time, though, when they count, there's only 4,000 people, men, plus the women and children. And afterwards, they pick up seven baskets full of stuff. I think this is really important. Jesus rarely does the same thing twice. And this message from the, the um, feeding of the 5,000 is so important to him that he does a repeat performance trying to get his disciples in particular to get the point of what he's trying to say. So like the first time, after the miracle, he puts them in a boat. This time he's with them. Apparently boats are like got lots of teachable moments in them. <coughs> He puts them in a boat. They're crossing back over the sea. And um, the, the scripture says they forgot to bring bread. 
Well, they had one life, to be exact. So they had, they're in this boat, and Jesus, he's stewing on something. And out of the blue, he says to them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. They start looking at each other. They're like, what do you think it means? I don't know. It's because we forgot the bread. I can just imagine the conversation. is like, there were seven baskets back there. Somebody could have picked up a couple of loaves, right? How come it's always my turn to have to take care of the food? When is it going to be his turn? And so they're, they're, they've got this argument going on, and Jesus is aware of their discussion. And he says, why are you talking about having no bread? When we fed the five, what did we start with? Five loaves. How much did we end up with? Twelve. When we fed the four, what did we start with? Seven. And what did we end up with? Seven. Baskets. He says, do you still not understand? And again, I would be the 13th guy in the boat going, um, no, I'm not sure I do get it. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, something you have to know is that in Matthew and Mark, before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has two encounters with the Pharisees. One of them is them coming like the people in John did, saying, hey, you're claiming to come from heaven? You better pony up a sign worthy of that. And he's like, no, if you haven't believed based on the stuff I've already done, nothing I do is going to convince you. And he refuses. The second one, the one I think that really sticks in his craw, is that they come to him and they're concerned because they've observed that his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat a ceremonial washing. And when they ask him, why don't your disciples follow the tradition of the elders and wash their hands before they eat, he comes unglued. Jesus lays into them. He is so frustrated by their legalism and the rules that they have created and the hypocrisy that comes out of, uh, of having this kind of rule system he says, you have created so many rules, one on top of the other, that you're actually negating the purpose of the law, which is intended to care for people. And he's so angry, he brings the crowd together. This is not just between him and the, the Pharisees. He says, I want you to hear this. Do you understand? Isn't it patently obvious that what goes into your mouth and comes out of your body is not what makes you spiritually unclean? Don't you know it's the stuff that comes out of your heart, your anger, your rage, your jealousy, your greed. Those are the things that pollute the body and the soul. You should be paying attention to that. It made him so angry to hear, these, to hear the Pharisees creating these rules that they got to decide which of the many, 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 many of them were the most important ones? Because don't you know, if you're a part of a system that's very legalistic, nobody can keep all the rules. Nobody can. And so somebody decides which ones are the most important. The ones that keep you in or the ones that put you out. 
Somebody, the people in power, find the ones that they like to keep and make them the priority. And they use other rules to oppress those who are not. And Jesus hated it. So back to the boys in the boat. Jesus is talking to them about not being like the Pharisees, right? We know because Matthew very kindly gives us the disciples' aha moment. He says, once Jesus laid out for them, I'm not talking about bread. If I needed bread, I could make it out of nothing. But you've got one loaf, I'm sure we could turn it into ten. Right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the yeast of the Pharisees. And Matthew says, they got this aha moment where they realize, oh, he's talking about the teaching and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees this time. You see, when Jesus, back at the beginning of the feeding of the 5,000, when he looked at them and said, you feed them, I think he meant it literally, right, obviously. He wanted them to take care of these people's physical needs. But he was also trying to train them on what it looks like to shepherd a flock. To not just have these one-off conversations or interactions, but to feel responsible to care for these people. And he showed them what that looked like. He also, in the feeding of the 5,000, had revealed who he was. Like when he talked with the people in, in John, he says, I'm the bread of life. He's revealing who he is. He is the source of life. He is a life giver. And as a result, any teaching that comes from him ought to be life-giving, unlike the teaching of the Pharisees, which was soul-sucking and life-crushing. He said to his disciples, this is what, when you are in charge, because remember at the end of the book of John, he's going to look at Peter, and he's going to say to him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so all this, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is a critical part of their training to understand. You've got to have a heart for caring for these people. And what you're delivering to them is not just the bread. You're delivering me and my teaching. You are delivering to them something life-giving. It better not look anything like the teaching of the Pharisees. And here's the really amazing part to me. He seems to believe that they're actually capable of doing it. Feeding of the 5,000. It's a watershed moment. People are impressed by it. But when he unleashes the meaning of the miracle on them, that he's the source of life, that he is God, that his words and his teaching are the way to a whole new way of living, a way that John describes as an abundant life, many of them walk away. The 12 stay, more than the 12 stay, but we're focused on the 12. 
And all four of the Gospels include after the teaching of the feeding of the 5,000. At, uh, at some point, fairly close after, it includes an episode in which Jesus comes back to that question that everybody had at the beginning. What's a scuttlebutt? What do people say that I, who I am? And they go, well, you know, there's this rumor going around that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Not so good. Some people think maybe you're Elijah or Jeremiah, like one of the old-timey prophets that has come back to life. And then he looks at them and says, so, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, on behalf of the, the 12, we have come to know and believe that you're the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, Peter, you just don't even have any idea how amazing this is. You are blessed. You've been given a gift. Because let's face it, you didn't come up with that on your own. God has revealed this to you. The, the hard heart that you had, that wasn't like a stubbornness. It's like you, the veil hadn't been pulled back yet. And now God has pulled that back just long enough for you to glimpse who I am. And for Jesus, this is really good news. It's like the thing that he's been working for this whole time to get into his disciples' head, that he is the source of life, that he provides plenty, more than enough. They've got that at least this much, and it gives him permission to move on to something else. Because all of the gospels say from this point on, watershed moment, from this point on, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and after three days rise again. That's definitely a different story. Okay? So we've got this watershed moment here. It's a major thing for the disciples to be able to get that Jesus is the source of life and that the teaching that comes out of him is life-giving. And that if they are to be teaching in his name, what they teach better be life-giving too. Emmaus, as a church, I want to challenge us to live out the pattern of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's be a place where our shoulders don't slump and our eyes don't roll, but we welcome everyone. Let's be a place where people find healing. Let's be a place that teaches the good news of the kingdom. And let's be a place that feeds people. But we'd be remiss if we didn't also be a place that challenges people about what they think about Jesus. Jesus had to battle people's expectations of who he was, right? And he got the reaction from them that, well, that's not enough. Give me another sign. Or arguing about what he really meant, and then they never really had to kind of try it out for themselves the thing that he said to do. And some of them just walked away. 
I suspect that all of us, if we were asked today, who is Jesus to you? At some point, we probably in this room, we have all three of those answers, right? And the truth is, most of us have probably done wash, rinse, repeat, recycle, all three of those at different points in our lives. And the good news is, is that this is a place where regardless of where you are when you answer that question, this is a safe place to process that. But it also becomes very important that those of us who've had just the little briefest aha moment where we can say in truth in our lives, we have come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that his words give us life. And when I surrender myself to that crazy, crazy truth, I leave satisfied. I live my life abundantly. Because no longer are we living out of a sense of scarcity, right? We've got plenty. We're connected to the source. And so that allows us to treat one another with generosity and grace. I'm excited to be a part of Emmaus because I believe that is the heart of who we want to be. So may God keep us from legalism and hypocrisy that it breeds. May we never be a church that sucks life out of people with our man-made expectations or damage souls with our judgment. Instead, because we believe that he is the inexhaustible source of an abundant life, that we can reach out to one another with grace and with generosity. It has been my real joy to be here with you today, and feel free to hang around for a few minutes if you can, greet people, meet somebody new, be generous to one another that way, um, but go in grace.